It seems like the title of this podcast, The Road to Shalom, is becoming more significant with each passing week of this pandemic. You know, the ancient word shalom is an incredibly nuanced Hebrew word for everything being the way it's supposed to be. The flourishing of all things without the diminishing of anything. A beautiful arrangement. Something God, the creator of shalom, described at the end of the creation account in the book of Genesis with the phrase, very good. But now it seems we find ourselves wandering in a minefield, searching for that very thing. It seems like the whole world is trying to find the road to shalom right now. I'm Fran Shaka, the show host. Welcome or welcome back. In the last episode, What Color is Your Passport? I introduced a biblical but relatively underknown idea that having an answer to the question, who do I say that I am, is a vital thing for people of faith. So much so that getting it wrong at this time in history, at least from where I'm sitting with 70 years behind me, may cost us our last seat at the table in terms of the gospel ministry. What I'd like to do here at the front end is to make a very brief visit back to that episode and connect the dots up to what we're going to look at in this one. And the best way I can do that is to lay out the three questions that I think are churning under the hood of anyone with a full set of chromosomes. The first question we looked at last episode, who do I say that I am, which is basically the question of identity. And I tried to make a case for us getting our identity from scripture rather than from any other source. The second question is, what's the point? Or put another way, this is the question of purpose. The notion that I have a reason to get out of bed each morning that's adequate enough to actually motivate me to do that, and that I'm believing that I'm a part of something bigger than me, or at least there's something bigger than me that I'm supposed to be a part of. One author described the idea of purpose like a plot, a storyline in which we each have a role, but his assessment of how that's going for most people, well, it isn't quite so good. Here's what he said. Most middle-class Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. As a result, their meanings and values are distorted. Their relationships disintegrate faster than they can keep them in repair. Their lifestyles resemble a cast of characters in search of a plot a cast of characters in search of a plot. Whoa, talk about a portrait of being lost on the road to meaning. But you know something? I think this guy's spot on. I think our obsession with all things new and improved, our constant attempts at being known, at being noticed, they all point to a quest for purpose, okay? And the third question has to do with our sense of calling or mission. And that's the question of what's my place? In other words, what's my contribution to whatever the point is now that I know who I am? It might sound a little complicated, beloved, but it's not. The real issue is that we just don't take the time to think about it, or maybe worse, no one's even introduced us to these questions in the first place. All three of these questions are legitimate, and I believe they're universal, and all three beg for answers for life to have meaning for life to have direction, for us to be satisfied. And beloved, this is not only true for us as individuals, it's also true for us corporately as a race of people. And one more thing, and this I think is really important. There's a proper order to getting these questions answered, to getting this right, as well as a predictable dismay from getting it wrong. 
And it goes like this. Identity leads to purpose and purpose leads to mission. You know, you jump in at the wrong spot and you're going to end up disillusioned, disenfranchised, and probably very cynical. I'm convinced that this is one of the major causes of the growing disintegration of organized religion in America and and the polarization within evangelicalism itself. The American church, beloved, without any real sense of who it is, has set out to fulfill what it believes is its mission. But too often, this mission is based on a purpose built around a few Bible verses about evangelism, yet totally disconnected from the actual narrative of the Bible, which in truth is our only real window into what in the world God is doing and always has been doing. You know, in the words of a dear friend of ours in England, we've lost the plot. And beloved, purpose depends on plot. No plot no purpose. Regardless of how passionate, how loud, how busy, and how big all our activity is, all right, American evangelicalism is a cast of characters in search of a plot. And when you don't have a plot, you know what you end up with? You end up with an agenda. The social justice, abortion, and racial equality movements in our day are excellent examples of how this plays out in real time. On one hand, the secular culture often tries to promote a mission that only makes sense in light of the biblical narrative, yet our culture denies the authority of that very narrative that validates it. Then on the other hand, American evangelicalism seems to dismiss, deny, or even marginalize the same secular mission because we've pawned our identity of subjects of a single kingdom for citizenship of a democracy, and we've embraced a variety of political agendas rather than the plot of Scripture. Because God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, I can pursue my best life now, which of course means affiliating with people who are no threat to that, people who want what I want. And that involves picking sides. And whenever believers pick sides, they almost always choose the wrong one. Let me show you what I mean. Let me take you back about 3,500 years to a Hebrew war encampment just outside the city of Jericho. The commander of the Jewish army was getting himself psyched for the next day's battle. Right? I picture him strolling through the camp with his sword at his side. And while he was, he had this unexpected encounter with another warrior, one who had his sword drawn. And he asked the stranger a very penetrating question. Whose side are you on? Ours or our adversaries? The stranger gave an unusual answer. He said, no. Then he went on to say, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Or if I can put it into a more modern idiom, the angel said, I'm not on either side. I'm on God's side. With the unspoken but clearly implied question to Joshua, whose side are you on? You know, this classic snippet from the life of Joshua to me is a great illustration of the danger to assume that God takes sides, and huh, it's always ours. Suddenly it's us versus them. Beloved, this is the birthplace of polarization. But the angel's subtle rebuke to Joshua is a reminder that when we focus on us or focus on them, we can't focus on him. And unfortunately, as a result, God himself is often excluded from our choices 
because we've exchanged our narrative for his and assumed that they're the same thing. Beloved, words like we, us, them, or those lead well-meaning Christians into paths of purposeless efforts, or worse, they engender a wartime mentality rather than a missional one. Life then becomes a war of agendas rather than fulfilling the mission of God. And, you know, and the issue of abortion is a clear modern example. In the nearly radioactive environment we find ourselves at the moment politically, the issue of abortion is glowing in the dark. And I'm running into more and more Christians who talk about being what they call single-issue voters. And I'm not going to comment on the wisdom of that. But I have to admit that those conversations are a lot like Joshua talking to the angel. Which side are you on? You're either pro-choice or you're pro-life. And the assumption is that God is pro-life. And, and of course he is. I'm just not so sure that many evangelicals are. I mean, pro-life. And best I can understand what most white evangelicals mean when they say they're pro-life, I have to say, I'm not. Now, don't hit the stop button here. I am not in favor of abortion on demand. I mean, I wasn't when Roe versus Wade stripped personhood from a human fetus the winter of my senior year in college. And 47 years later, my convictions haven't changed. But I am deeply troubled by the confusion of terms that characterizes much of the Christian chatter on this issue. All right, let me go back to our friend Joshua to explain. You remember his question to the angel, which side are you on? I'd like to fast forward that encounter to the present and had the conversation with the angel be about abortion rather than the defeat of Jericho. I want you to picture Joshua, or yourself would actually be better, approaching the angel and asking, which side are you on, pro-life or pro-choice? And the angel saying back, I'm on God's side. Which side are you on? Just like with Joshua's error, it turns out that there's three sides to the abortion question, not two. And the confusion is all wrapped up in our vocabulary. If someone asked you, are you pro-life or pro-choice? I think I know how most of you would respond. So let me push this in a little further. All right. If you told someone you were pro-life and they then asked you, what does that mean? What are you for? If you're pro-life, what are you for? What would you say then? If your response would be any version of I'm against abortion, or I think killing a fetus is murder, or I'm an advocate for the rights of the unborn, I'm going to suggest to you that's the wrong answer. Okay, do you remember learning about synonyms in school? I mean, a word or phrase that means exactly or nearly the same thing as another word or phrase? Okay, yeah, that's a synonym. All right, that's a synonym. Here's the most important thing that I think we've got to get straight on the issue of abortion. Because in my experience, this is an illustration where we evangelicals have been talking to each other and at the larger culture for so long, we've never taken the time to examine our vocabulary. At least a ton of us haven't. Being anti-abortion and being pro-life are not synonyms. They're not synonymous. They're related, but they are not two ways of saying the same thing. If a person is pro-life, then they're very likely going to be anti-abortion, almost for sure. But a person who is anti-abortion is not automatically pro-life. In fact, being anti-abortion does not qualify me for being pro-life. 
Well, then what does it mean? Well, it means what the words mean. It qualifies what I'm against, which is abortion, not what I'm for. So am I saying that a person who's against abortion should actually say they're against abortion? All right, now I don't want there to be any confusion here. That's exactly what I'm saying. Unless, of course, they're also pro-life. Then they should say they're pro-life and their position on abortion is one expression of being pro-life. But if they're going to say they're pro-life, they should say it both with their lips and their life. Beloved, this is the Joshua question in real time. The correct question now becomes, which side are you on, anti-abortion or pro-abortion? And the angel responds, neither. I'm on God's side. I'm pro-life. Which side are you on? Now, are you confused? Are you? If so, then my point is hitting home. Beloved, let me say this gently but clearly. God is pro-life and we should be too. But, but, we're not really. We're anti-abortion. That's what we're against. So if God's pro-life, what does being pro-life look like? Well, let me take you to another passage of Scripture and let's approach this from the back door. Let's say it's the beginning of Lent and you're thinking of fasting from pasta. You're going to sort of be anti-pasta for a few weeks. That's where the title of this podcast came from. You're going to be anti-pasta during Lent. And you encounter this same poor angel who by this time is tired of being a sermon illustration and you have a similar conversation. Whose side are you on? Those who are pro-fasting or those who are anti-fasting? You know, the good old us versus them question. The angel responds, I'm on God's side and he has defined true fasting. Which side are you on? Remember, you're anti-pasta. So what does anti-pasta have to do with being pro-fasting? Well, God's short answer is nothing. It has nothing to do with being pro-fasting. Listen carefully as he describes what it looks like to be pro-fasting. This is from Isaiah 58. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? Beloved, this is the difference between being anti-pasta and pro-fasting. Being anti-pasta doesn't make me pro-fasting. It only makes me anti-pasta. But if I get this wrong, I'll really believe that I'm pro-fasting. I'll tell people that. I'll affiliate with others who are and shun those who aren't, all the while never being pro-fasting while assuming that I am. This is the same for being pro-life. It's very possible that I can be anti-abortion and believe I'm pro-life, tell others that, hang out with folks like that, vote for folks like me, all the while merely being anti-abortion. What does it mean that God's pro-life? Well, just like the words anti-abortion or anti-fasting, it means what the words say. He's pro-life. He's invested in what makes for life. He's active in protecting, nurturing, and propagating what makes for life. 
And just like his descriptive list of the characteristics of being pro-fasting, he's done the same thing about being pro-life. You know, as a former classroom teacher, I sort of see Yeshua's descriptive list of being like God, of being pro-life, as similar to the angel's response to the Joshua question. Uh, Kind of like a pro-life exam, so to speak. Here's what Yeshua says about what it looks like to be pro-life. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers. You did it to me. And fortunately for us, he also gives us the descriptive list of what it looks like not to be pro-life. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick. I was in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. All right, some of you are rolling your eyes. I I know that. I just hope you're not driving. No, seriously. This passage is a theological swamp for a whole lot of reasons. I get that. But just this once please don't immediately go to some explanation that begins with these two words. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Just listen to what Yeshua is saying here. This is God in a body telling us what he thinks about people without food, without water, people who are justly or unjustly incarcerated, people without clothing, children without parents, Refugees without countries, widows without families, people without health care and textbooks, people without clean water, people with no advocates. And it's also about those who entered into those hard and gruesome spaces and brought some relief. This is the God Jesus told us to address in prayer as our Father, our Father who art in heaven. And what does God himself say about this portrait of being a father? This is what the scripture says. Father to the fatherless, protector of widows, is God, is God in his holy habitation. Beloved, this is what God does because this is who God is. And make no mistake, God is pro-life. Is he anti-abortion? Of course he is. But he's also for a lot more things as well because he's truly pro-life. You know, the question staring right at us, is, am I? Are you? Does our vocabulary match our actions, our investments, 
and our associations. All right, let me end this episode telling you one more story. And this one is very likely more legendary than historical, but it's nearly been given the status of truth because it's been cited so many times by so many different people. As the story goes, Alexander the Great was walking through his military camp on one of his campaigns to conquer the world. And while strolling through his camp, he came upon a sleeping soldier who was supposed to be on guard that very hour. Alexander, the ultimate Macedonian warrior, was furious. He shook the young soldier and woke him up and staring at him eye to eye, demanded to know his name. Face to face with his king, the trembling soldier muttered that his name was also Alexander. And Alexander the Great replied slowly but fiercely, either change your name or live up to your name. And as we close this episode, I'd like to revisit this idea that God has a mission. And it's an authentic pro-life mission. Our purpose as individuals and our purpose as the body of Christ, the thing for which he's redeemed us, is inseparable from his mission to make things very good again, to restore shalom and remove the things that rob it, the righting of wrongs, the setting things straight. And there's another beautiful Hebrew word for this whole notion of righting wrongs and making things right, okay? It's the word mishpat. We translate it justice. But in God's economy and in the Hebrew scriptures, it's every kind of justice. God's a God of justice because he's pro-life. He's for life as it's supposed to be. Shalom is God's goal and justice is his means to restore and protect it. Beloved, the restoration of shalom through the work of justice was at the heart of the ministry of Jesus himself. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You know, being anti-abortion doesn't cost much. In most cases, it costs nothing, and it allows a person to be a single-issue Christian. Being pro-life, well, it costs. And it costs a lot, in fact because you can't just talk about it. It's actually measurable. People can tell if you're really pro-life by watching you. You know, as I close, I want to challenge all of us with the words of Alexander the Great to that sleeping soldier. When it comes to our use of the phrase pro-life, I think we need to either change our vocabulary or change our behavior. And if we're following God's narrative rather than our own, it's got to be the latter of those two options. Think about it. Shalom.